Are you ready for a very powerful story about the power of your mitzvahs? This is Rabbi Yitzchak Price with another episode of Tachlis Talks. And we're going to today pull back to our Parsha, at least for this week, the Parsha of Baloscha, very briefly, share an insight related to the Parsha and a gripping story, Holocaust-related, although it moved us quite a few decades post the Holocaust as well, that can give us an appreciation for the many mitzvahs that we're doing anyway, and hopefully have a greater enthusiasm and fervor to get them to even a greater degree of fulfillment. Within the Parsha, at the beginning of the Parsha, Aaron HaKohen, Aaron, the first high priest, is charged with the kindling of the menorah, not Arachanika menorahs, although there's certainly connection in Nachmanides and others to Nachanika menorahs and the reading in our Parsha, but this is the seven-branched menorah in the Mishkan and the tabernacle, later to be found in the first temple in Jerusalem and then in the second temple in Jerusalem and eventually, hopefully soon, in the third temple in Jerusalem. But Aaron is tasked with the kindling and a text describes by Ya'as Cain Aaron, and he did so. Well, like, of course, he did so. If Aaron was commanded by God to do something, do we doubt that he followed through? Rashi Quoting over from the sages, tells us Malamed Shaloshina, teaching that there was no deviation. Commentaries differ exactly what is being highlighted in this, but one approach is that Aaron is being praised for the fact that there was no deviation whatsoever. The enthusiasm, the fervor, the loyalty that he displayed in night number one, the first evening when he had to kindle that menorah, after months of anticipation. They knew for a long time were involved in the collection for that Mishkan, for the tabernacle, the, the collection of all the goods and the production, and then it's all ready to go when it hits the winter, the date that later on in history will be Hanukkah, but God does not have us actually induct the Mishkan quite yet, not until the beginning of Nisan in the spring, and first for seven days in anticipation of that, Moses Moshe Rabbeinu is doing the service in the temple, and now it's night number one that Aaron has been looking forward to. Months of anticipation to be going into that zone of the Beis HaMikdash that most can't go there. I can't go there. I'm not a Kohen. Only the Kohanim, only the priests can go into that section, the Kodesh territory of the Mishkan. And Aaron is the first one ever to light this holy menorah, the menorah that symbolizes the light of God that God provides us within this world, the wisdom of Torah. He's supercharged. He's been focusing on making sure he has the details of how to do it correctly, the level of depth and profundity, the kavana, perfection, as he goes in there night number one. And all that enthusiasm and fervor and dedication and excellence is repeated again on night number two. And then again on night number 22, and 52, and 202. And in fact, by tradition, Aaron personally lit that menorah every day of the rest of his life. Eventually, we turned over to his sons. And although Aaron was not obligated to light it each night, by tradition, he continued to light it every single evening and maintained that same dedication, that same loyalty, that same focus, that same fervor, that same enthusiasm. Continuing, night 301 and 501 and 1001, we're talking about a 
approximately 38 years times the 354 days in the Jewish calendar, and leap years balance it out. So it ends up being about a 365-day average year once you go through the cycles. That's a lot of nights. And to maintain that he continued to do the, that mitzvah without any deviation, he was the same enthusiastic, passionate, the, the same reverence and focus on detail, all of that packaged together, which we can imagine on night number one, continued throughout. And if we think about it, we've often had situations in our life where something was very new, very special, but those very new, very specials often lose some of their very special as they become less new. And whether we're in the realm of the spiritual or in the mundane, that first time you had the opportunity to take the car keys and go off on your own, the new house, different family uh, experiences, and Often, over time, we lose a little bit of that enthusiasm and then lose a little bit more and we tend to even forget this is something special. But a mitzvah, by definition, is special. God has directed me to do this and this is a point of contact between me and God. This is a point of connection. The word mitzvah, aside from commandment, also relates to the word of tzavta, of creating an attachment. Tzavta or tzavas, which is a a bonding, a linking. And some mitzvahs are linking us with other people. All mitzvahs are in some manner linking us with God and appreciating that I have this opportunity to do that which God has designed in the best interest of my soul for my spiritual perfection should create a certain enthusiasm. And the fact that not only am I doing it now, but I'm doing it even though I've done it before, I have another opportunity to do it. I can keep doing this should boost our enthusiasm for that. Following story. I don't share lots of stories that are dependent on part of the story having happened in a dream. But over here, the chain of transmission is is very tight, very solid. There is a Rabbi Unger, was Rabbi Unger in Bnei Brak. Among the many uh, different symbols of kosher supervision in Israel, one is the symbol that says in it, Chug Chatam Sofer. The Chassam Sofer community of Bnei Brak, the rabbi of the Chug Chassam Sofer, that was the rabbi behind that uh, supervision for many years, was a Rabbi Unger in Bnei Brak, and we know the story from him. An individual comes to Rabbi Unger, and he shares with him, I need to tell you a story. The story starts decades ago, when I got to the slave and death camp of the Nazis, their names be obliterated. And almost immediately upon arrival, I'm tipped off to the fact that that smoke is the rest of my family. And over here, I am around to be utilized by the Nazis as a mere pawn in their agenda. My family is gone. What kept me going, what stopped me from collapsing, what gave me the emotional fortitude just to survive was a bunkmate. And he called even the word bunk, right? the hard conditions of their living. One of the others who was sharing this Yehenom on earth existence with me was a young Hasidic man who kept finding ways to sneak in words of encouragement. Chizuk, words to keep me uplifted. He was constantly finding little ways here and there to be able to still do some type of a mitzvah in this horrendous environment, to say words of prayer, to be 
showing some type of appreciation to God and keeping me attached to Hashem. He kept me going, and one day he tells me, I've calculated that we're X number of days away from Pesach. Passover is down the road. Bitter herbs we are experiencing constantly. But wouldn't it be amazing if somehow we could have some matzah? Matzah? Who could even be thinking matzah? Who could be calculating, being attentive to Pesach in this environment where time was meaningless and day and night and days of week and days of the month were seemingly of no consequence? But he was focused on the fact that Pesach was down the road and he mentioned this to me and it happens to be, this individual is telling Rabbi Unger, I knew where the Nazis had stashes of grain. Where I did some of my slave labor, I had passed by an area where they had sacks of grain. They needed grain to make the bread, probably the good quality bread that they got to eat and the stale little pieces of bread that occasionally were tossed our way. And I knew where they had the grain. And I passed in proximity to those sacks. And I determined... I could probably just reach out with my hand and occasionally grab a few kernels and did so and was able to sneak together a few kernels until I had enough kernels that I could then pound down into flour. I found an opportunity to heat up a piece of metal with a little bit of the very rare commodity called water that I had access to. I was able to combine the flour, and water it into a dough and bake it on that hot metal. And I produced two olive measures of matzah. The basic mitzvah of matzah is to eat that olive measure, the kezayas. I had two such measures. And I, and this young man who was keeping me charged and alive, and this young man who was so focused on matzah and Pesach, we would both be able to have matzah on Pesach night. Well, the problem was getting that little bit of bread, the matzah, kosher Pesach bread, back to my bunk. The most extreme contraband would be anything that could give us further survival. We could not be walking around with extra food. How am I going to get this food back to the bunk? I decided to try to hide it under my shirt. I had it inside my shirt with my arm pressed against me as I walked so that it wouldn't fall to the ground until... A Nazi guard, whether he suspected me or was otherwise in the mood of taunting a Jew, gave me a push. And as he gave me the push, my hand moved away from my shirt. My shirt allowed now the bread to fall down, the matzah to fall to the ground. And when the Nazi saw that matzah on the ground, he started stomping on the matzah and stomping on me. He was beating me and pulverizing the matzah until he got distracted and went off to taunt somebody else. And I eventually picked myself off the ground, saw what were now crumbs of the matzah, reached out as fast as I could, grabbed some in my hand, and went back to my bunk. I get back to the bunk, and I share the experience. My bunkmate sees me, and I, you, you look, you're, you're bruised, you're bleeding, what's going on? I tell him the story. And he said, wow, you almost died for that matzah. What an incredible display of devotion to a mitzvah. Phew, at least you have a little bit left. I show what I have. Enough that one of us would be able to eat some matzah on Pesach night. 
one olive's measure is left in my hand. My friend asks me, can I have it? Can you have it? You acknowledge I almost died making sure I would retrieve this little bit of masa and bring it back here. And I did all that effort finding the kernels of grain and making the flour. And can you have it? Well, my friend turns to me and says, you wouldn't have any matzah whatsoever if I hadn't drawn your attention to the fact that it's almost Pesach. And what I would do is as follows. I'll buy the matzah from you by my reciting the entire Haggadah word for word by heart. You will be able to listen to the entire Haggadah with me and you'll give me the matzah if you consent. I was not ready to forfeit that matzah until my friend then upped the ante and he said, listen, I'll recite the full Haggadah for you and I will ask God, I'll ask Hashem to turn over to you the spiritual merit. Whatever spiritual reward is the outcome of eating that matzah, every mitzvah generates some type of eternal spiritual elevation, that should be turned over to you. Seeing how intensely passionate my friend was about the opportunity to eat the matzah, which would now provide him no eternal reward, but just the opportunity to show Hashem that I want to do your mitzvah. And I'm getting that eternal reward anyway. I decided to let him have it. That night, when we hit Pesach night, quietly, my friend recited for me the entire Haggadah. When he got to the point of the blessing of the matzah, my friend ate the matzah. I said, Amen to his blessing. I watched him eat that matzah, knowing that this had not been an easy decision for me to forfeit it to him, but I was making his day or making his night making his year, perhaps, because he was so elated. And I was ultimately getting the spiritual reward. We finished the Seder. We quietly sang together L'shana Habab Yerushalayim next year in Jerusalem and went to sleep. The next morning, back at slave labor, my friend is saying softly to himself the words of the prayers. And he got to the blessing on the Hallel. Asher Kiddushanu, God, you sanctified us and he was shot and killed. The survivor, the one who did not eat the matzah, the one who gave over the matzah after doing heroics to produce that matzah and maintain the matzah, the one who did not eat the matzah but secured the heavenly reward for the matzah, tells Rabbi Unger, that's part one of the story. Part two happened last night. Last night, I had a dream. That friend from years back, my bunkmate in the, in the uh, that bunk in the uh, Nazi t- camp, that friend came to me in a dream. And he asked me, would you consider turning back to me the spiritual benefit of having eaten that matzah? And in the dream, I said, are, are you kidding? It's a big enough deal that I let you eat the matzah. <laughs> if that was the pay for your opportunity to eat the matzah that I put so much effort, almost died for that matzah. The pay was that I was getting the spiritual reward. You want the reward? My friend said, please. The dream ended with me not having given him the reward. Rabbi Unger, what should I have done and what should I now do? Rav Unger said to this individual, the hero of our story, he said to him, 
I'm not comfortable answering this question. I want you to go and talk to the Machnavker Rebbe. There are many different Hasidic Rebbe's out there. This is not a name that many have heard of. Not the size of Satmar or Lubavitch or Bells or Babav or Vizhnitz that all have thousands and thousands and thousands of adherents. Machnavka is a much smaller Hasidic group. Their Rebbe, Bnei Brak of those days, about a few decades ago, was an incredibly spiritually elevated individual. A very spiritually keen individual. And Rabbi Unger wanted to hear what he would have to say about this. So our hero goes to the Machnav Karebbe, tells him the entire story, tells him the dream, and Rabbi Unger suggested I turn to you, the Rebbe, to find out what to do. The Machnav Karebbe tells our hero, you should turn over the reward to him. You should give him back his reward. I should give him back his reward? The Machnav Karebbe says, listen, you were able to continue your life post that night in the Holocaust. You built a family. You're teaching your children Torah. Every mitzvah that they do and that their children are going to do is going to accrue to your credit, to your merit. You're living a life surrounded by mitzvahs. You daven this morning. You've got a mezuzah on your door. You're making decisions throughout your day, throughout your week, throughout your year, your continued life that are all accruing to you spiritually. Your friend didn't have that opportunity. He's asking you for one more merit. You should turn it over to him. Our hero says, okay, if that's what the Rebbe thinks, I'm okay doing that. The Rebbe said, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. You have to get yourself to a place that you want to do it, to be able to do that. Take these keys to my private Beit Midrash, my private study hall. Go in there. Open the Aron Kodesh. Open the Ark. Put your head in that ark and talk to God. Tell God. Rehash the story. Telling over the story. Telling over the dream. And see where you end up. If you end up wanting to give back the reward. Okay. Takes the keys. Goes to that study hall. Quiet. Opens the ark. Okay. God. Hashem. Here's the story. Goes through the story, which was very emotional as he's telling the story, to the dream and where the dream ended up. And he ends up with the words, and Hashem and God, I want to turn the reward over to my friend. He was fully wanting that. He was fully dedicated to that. He was able to express that. Finishes his declaration. Closes the ark. And he's wiped out. Emotionally drained hands the keys to one of the assistants of the Rebbe, says, I'll come talk to the Rebbe tomorrow, goes home, lies down, and falls asleep. And as he's sleeping, he has a dream. And in his dream, that friend appears to him, glowing, white, shining, and says, I came to say thank you. The next morning, our hero goes back and tells the Machna of Rebbe what happened. He was talking to Hashem. He got himself to that point. He was comfortable. His friend came back to him in his dream. And then he goes to Rav Unger, the one who he started this story with. And he tells Rav Unger, catches him up on what the Machanov Karebbe suggested, going to talk at the, in the Ark, and where he got to the point of wanting to give back to the reward, having a sense of a release, and having the dream confirm that that's what happened. Rabbi Unger tells our hero the following. 
listen to the message in what we just experienced. Where was your friend prior to your turning over the reward for the matzah? In heaven, in a blissful relationship with Hashem. I have no concerns about him being in a special place. He died as a martyr in the Holocaust. That itself makes somebody a kadosh, makes somebody holy. You refer to the martyrs of the Holocaust as kadoshim. But he died as a martyr in the Holocaust. It wasn't just somebody who happened to be Jewish, who was maintaining as Jewish a life as he could, who was maintaining as much dedication to Hashem as he could. He was heroically focused on others, giving you support and encouragement in this situation. He was focused on the opportunity of the mitzvah. He was eager to do another act of mitzvah, even if it meant him not getting any spiritual reward. And by the way, every mitzvah experience, you knew your life was on the line for every behavior you were doing. Guard walks in at the wrong moment. And he was ready to do that act of selfless dedication to Hashem. He died with the words of the blessing of Hallel on his lips, describing Asher Kedishanu, how God, you have sanctified us. And he really was sanctified. And yet, he so valued one more mitzvah's reward. Where he was in heaven, he could appreciate that each mitzvah's reward is so significant that not having that, he felt a certain deficit that he was coming to ask you if he could have that back. What does that tell us about the power and the value of a mitzvah? All of our mitzvahs, some of them maybe something, you know, I haven't yet started doing this one. I really should try to do that. Many others, we're already doing it, but we've lost appreciation. We've lost focus. If we can better appreciate the value of the mitzvah, can we better appreciate how much we should be dedicated to each and every mitzvah opportunity, how thankful we should be to God for giving us those opportunities of connection to Him, of spiritual elevation through each and every of those mitzvahs, then we can take that Aaron message and not ever be been there, done that, but rather continue climbing with each mitzvah, continue to develop further and further simcha and joy for the mitzvah itself, and in so doing, become the type of people who will be far more likely to achieve our tachlis.